Welcome back, and for those who are new to the New Levels Coaching Podcast, a very warm welcome. It's a little bit cooler, actually. It's the end of January. We've had mixed weather, to say the least, and we're into episode 19 already of the New Levels Coaching Podcast. Remember, we are the endurance podcast that brings you lots of inspiration and education, so you can literally go away and run with that. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined again by Dr. Matt Long, my good friend and fellow coach here in Loughborough. Matt is also one of our coaches at New Levels Coaching. And if you haven't heard Matt's first two episodes on the New Levels Coaching podcast, then I suggest you go back and you check those out because they are a brilliant insight into lots of different areas, which really tie into today. So this is almost part three of uh, Matt and Lewis being together on the pod. And I'm really looking forward to it. This episode is all about training zones, train intensities and how you get that right. Whether you are a runner, whether you're a triathlete, whether you're somebody who's looking to get into running for the very first time, it's something a lot of people struggle with. What does pace mean? What does effort mean? Well, we're going to go right back to basics, strip it back, and I'm going to pick Matt's excellent coaching brains about how he does that with his athletes, how he does it himself as, as a runner as well, and how we can then apply that to our training. So this is episode 19. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for having us back. Can't believe it's the 19th episode. It shows how popular this series is. Do you, do you see this running forever to, uh, to to kind of pardon the pun? Yeah, it is a pun, isn't it? Because do I see myself running forever? I hope so. You know, I hope I, I carry on right up into my great master's years. Uh, and do I see the podcast running forever? Well, I think at the weekend I was, I was given a bit of surprise. I went to the Midlands Cross Country and somebody stopped me and said, oh, I've just been listening to your podcast this morning and I'd never met that person. And I said to Gemma, that was the first time that's happened. Somebody random has stopped and said, really like the podcast, really enjoy it. And I, and I feel like as long as we're providing that value to the running community, we should keep producing the podcast. Sure. And well done about your own excellent performance there. I think you were 26th in the, the Midland Counties at the weekend. And hopefully that could lead, you know, fingers crossed uh, to, a, to a county vest in the the forthcoming Intercounties Championships, which is great. Yeah, my first ever Leicestershire County vest. I was a North Easterner uh, back when I was younger, but obviously now a resident here in Leicestershire as I base myself in Loughborough. So I've been invited or certainly will be considered for the Leicestershire team. And apparently Leicestershire won the Intercounties last year, Matt. I believe they did, yeah. yeah it's certainly means. a real achievement as a, as a Masters athlete. Sorry to remind you of your age. But you are above the age of 35, unless I'm mistaken. So a real achievement. We've often spoken, haven't we, about you. You're very, very keen to emphasise this this idea of bridging. We spoke about your own career as a, as a former British champion and world championship representative for Team GB of going from club to county uh, to, to, um, to regional level, running for the north, running for England, then GB. And it's almost as if, you know, you're coming down the stairs, but it, but but you're still taking those steps, aren't you? Yeah, and I think that was a really good way of looking at it. I got quite excited to be asked about that. And I remember the first time I got excited to run for the county, but it's just where I am with, with my running now. And uh, what I really liked about the weekend, I was doing something for myself, which I know you're, you're big on. You know, you've got to have your own time. And I used to get a little bit worried because I thought I should be coaching. You know, I'm a coach, I should be coaching. But actually there's, there's some times when you need to put something in your calendar for just your Yourself and your own mental health and I've I've really enjoyed that and hopefully I've got my eyes uh you know back or certainly open the eyes of these England Masters selectors like yourself to <laughs> 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 potentially get in sneaking one of those sure. teams but that's a long way off and again you, you know you might find that second time round it's almost as if you, you're going back to your roots almost where you you started maybe looking you know 20 odd years ago getting your county vest but you probably will will enjoy it from a process point of view a little bit more this time because you're not you're not striving to get up the ladder you're accepting where you are which is which is what I took from the the podcast number 18 the excellent podcast that you did with Alex Haynes about being in the moment lots there about being mindful not pushing too hard uh, Alex himself talking about the difference between running 90 miles a week 100 miles a week wanting to represent team wales and now being happy with a relatively young family running 30 miles a week. 
it's all about where you are in your life, isn't it? And what, yeah. what you're looking to achieve. And we had a really good coaching discussion just this week around, uh, well, actually it was at the marathon workshop, you know, where, where should you start with your running when you've planned out these long-term plans? And we were saying to the athletes, well, you've got to know where you're going with your goal, but you've also got to know what you want. It's, yeah. it's a really important factor. And it was a, it was a very good episode. I really enjoyed it with Alex. I love getting back together with Alex. He's my old coach and we do just bounce off each other as, as we do, Matt. But, but um, you were racing at the weekend as well, a fell race, I believe, and a little bit, little bit lost on the route. Well, the, the good news was uh, it, it was a, it was a, probably a, quite a serious fell race. It was called Tigger Tor up in uh, in Sheffield on the outskirts of Sheffield, and I, I managed to to pass the the kit test where they check whether you've got the gloves, the hat, you know, the thermals, the compass, the whistle. But of course, what I didn't tell them was I've. I've never used a compass since I was 15 years old at school. <laughs> and of course, I, di- I did get lost after about seven miles. I was, you know, towards the rear end of the field, about, you know, halfway, two thirds of the way down the field and suddenly took a drink, looked up, everyone's gone. Do I take this path, that path? And of course, I ran along with a runner then that was just behind me, got chatting to him after about half a mile, realised he was just on a training run. He had no number on. <laughs> so he was just out for a so normal he was out run. out for a run. So I thought that he was taking me around the course, and he said, no, I'm not in any race. Oh, no. <laughs> We've all been All's there. well that ends well. I got, I got caught up by some people who were further back behind me, and we, we ran round together. So I made it in the end. Excellent. And in, and in the spirit of today, we're talking about training effort and zones. What sort of effort for, uh, for you at the weekend was it, Matt? How hard were you trying? Uh, I would probably say about a seven out of 10. You okay. Know, it was quite a, a big volume race for me. You know, it was a, a nine miler, which of course is, uh, doesn't seem like an awful long way, but uh, it's a heck of a long way, you know, when you, you're climbing nearly 2000 feet, which is what, more than 400 meters and uh, whatever yeah 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 it's a good good elevation yeah i'm well into my elevation now as you know with the the trail and ultra stuff and it's a big part of my planning actually it's something i've had to learn quite quickly yeah. you know how do you get that elevation change in your training well you've got the workshops coming up i think you we have yeah, yeah yeah and hopefully you'll be joining us in the peak district fingers crossed for the uh the trail camp which will be cool and we've got the physiology workshops coming up in birmingham uh which you're you're familiar with over over at the track there we've just had the marathon workshop so lots lots to, to obviously come in the year one thing we were chatting about at the weekend was this you know effort level of skill that the common question we get from a lot of runners is how fast do you want me to run mm. and I think it's fair to say that most people sometimes run too fast or certainly on easier days or recovery days really struggle to lock into that easier pace that recovery pace and we just simplified things and it was kind of a light bulb moment for me where we talk a lot about RP and effort out of 10, but some people still don't get that understanding of it. And it's really mm. important to go quite deep with it. And I think that's what I want to do today is look at those scales and particularly those training zones that people refer to and maybe unpick some of the myths around it as well, around junk miles and things like that and all this zone two training and 80-20 mm. rules and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see, you know, what your thoughts are on. We've mentioned it before, the RPE skills. Do you still use it in your coaching, Matt? Yeah, remember we, we spoke, um, I think last time we were here, Lewis, we spoke about that kind of binary between running to split on the one hand and running to feel on the other. And I think the good thing about both any zonal system and any RPE system is it offers you that halfway house because it's about perception. It clearly is about feel. But inevitably, you know, if you talk about zones one, two, three, four, and if you talk about an RPE scale, it's one to 10 or one to 20, whatever kind of Borg scale you use, that quantification, that 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 numerical figure does give you some kind of benchmark. So I think that the zonal system that you want to talk about and the RPE system offer a kind of middle way. They, they take the best of feel and the best of, of split. So I'd like to pick up where we where we left up left that debate before and, and rather than seeing it as a binary in either or, let's go for the middle ground. Yeah, I like that because you're saying, look, we've got all this data out there now and you mm. can look this on these watches, they're incredible now, some of these watches, what they can give you. Um but I still believe this perception of effort is so, so important. And and actually to to go back to the, the weekend, I I kind of had an idea of what sort of, um, I guess, what sort of shape I'm in. But in mm. cross country, 
it almost becomes irrelevant your pace. Of course it does. Yeah. I didn't even have my pace on my watch. I mm. was I was all to effort, and I was questioning myself: Could I do this for another thirty-five minutes? You know, have I got another thirty-five minutes of this level in me? Yeah. And constantly checking in with myself, and I, and I, but I would look for certain points, as you say, for just a little bit of middle ground where I'd check my watch, and I wasn't looking for pace, but I'd say, okay, how long have I done? I've done, ten, okay, I've done 10 minutes, good, right? I know I've got another 30 left now. So I wanted some data to help me with that perception of effort. Mm. But ultimately, I was listening to my body and listening to my breathing and all those things. You mentioned your breathing, but what, what other specific things, that those kind of, as we call it, kinesthetic feedback, bodily feedback, what were you listening to internally then apart from your breathing? Good question. So um, I actually, I'll be honest, I was also listening to other people's breathing because I was thinking, right, are they trying a little bit too hard? They seem to be breathing a lot heavier than me. So I was taking a bit of confidence from that. I was feeling my legs. So are my legs feeling okay? And at the mm. start of the race, they were, they were feeling quite fresh. They were feeling great. But I was also climbing the hill. I was like, okay, um, how do my legs feel on the hill? How am I reacting to that? On the downhill, am I feeling anything quite different? Mm. I was getting a feel for the ground. Where do I feel like I'm putting in... Um, less effort but getting more return so what parts of the course are better for me I was trying to suss that out as we went as well mm. and then I was listening to things as well like my feet my feet started to hurt later on in the race started to get a bit of blisters because I'd mm. not worn my spike so I was asking myself you know how are this feeling and then trying to block that out almost so mm. there was certain kind of perceptions that I wanted to, to feel from but ultimately I kept going back to myself and saying where am I on that scale where am I on that, that Borg scale, that RPE scale? Because in my head, I wanted to set off around six or seven, which I class steady towards kind of tempo. And by the end, on a sliding scale, I wanted, and I think this is an important point, I wanted that intensity not to change, mm. but I knew that RPE would then go up with the duration of the race. Of course it would, yeah. And how often were you looking and cognizant of what was going on on your watch? Because I, I, I know that the splits are immaterial on a, on a cross-country course, but... You know, you would have known that it was a you know a, a distance of I don't know roughly ten k, maybe twelve k. You would be looking at, at the time and the distance on your watch. How 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 often? How frequently did you look at your watch? If I can remember rightly, I looked at it three times. Three times. I looked at it around about ten minutes, mm. uh, just to get a feel, see if my perception was right. Uh, have I done around ten minutes? And that was kind of my thinking. I think it was just over. Mm. I looked again um, around. I think I caught it just below thirty minutes. And then again, I looked, they they sent us on the, the final bit. I thought we had a little bit longer to do. Mm. And they said, no, no, you're going down here. And at that point, I checked just to kind of get a gauge for how long I was away from the finish. I was trying to judge my effort there. Mm. And I, I think I was about uh, maybe a kilometer away at that point. So I knew, okay, right, I've got a kilometer left now. Now I've got to gauge my effort for that last kilometer. What's very interesting about what you've you've told me almost from a psychological perspective is, again, it's not a binary You've clearly focused on process-based things. You've clearly listened to your internal kind of feedback, your bodily feedback. But you've also been goal-aware in terms of the, the time, in terms of the split, in terms of the distance. And you remember us talking, I think, informally about um, a, a particular psychological theory which was uh, invented, I think, in the mid-1970s by Apter and Smith. It's called reversal theory. And the basic principle behind reversal theory is that we can never spend too much time in one psychological state only. Yeah? Got you. We need to be reversed by external cues or to reverse ourselves. In your case, between what we call the telic, being goal-focused, looking at your watch three times, looking at the distance, looking at how far you've got to go and praying for the finish line, but also you've got to reverse back to what they call the paratelic, the process, the feeling. So Apter and Smith, if they were around today and still writing about reversal theory today, would be very interested in the interplay between those two binaries, the fact that you needed to, to do both yep. at various points. And it's getting that balance right. And isn't that what the... There's an emerging theme of this podcast already. It's not about binaries. It's about knowing when to run to field, knowing when to run to split, knowing when to focus on goals, knowing when to focus on process. It seems to me as, a, as an as elite athlete, which you, you were, 
and still are in many ways and, and will be as a master's, that, that, that you've got that balance almost intuitively right. And I, I say to people, I always have, that I felt like that's always been one of my strengths as an athlete. Mm. And um, and then they'll say, well, oh, you're just quite lucky that you've got that as a strength. And then I go back to them and say, actually, no, it's because I've spent years practicing it and I don't look at my watch much in training. Mm. So to give an example, I was running a session this morning with, with Gemma and Chris, and apart from looking to see when we need to stop the rep, I don't look at it at all. Of course. I just judge it all on effort. But then mm. I might look at it every now and again. So, for example, on the last rep, I said to Chris, Chris, we're halfway there on the last rep. We've got three minutes left. So, again, just that little bit of, like, goal focus, right? Three minutes to go. Let's put it back in there. But then I look back into, okay, how much effort I've got to be putting in here. So yeah. I've... The reason I'm good at it in races is because I've spent so long doing it in training, which we're trying to encourage people to do more. So what I'm hearing is it's about habituation again. Absolutely is. Yeah, get yeah. it right in training and then carry that in, into the particular race, yeah. Well, I don't know about you, Matt, but I just don't see how people can do it in the race and expect to do it if they're not doing it out of habit in training. Like, for mm. me, that is what training is. It's about learning all those things, not just physically, but also mentally, so that when you come to the race, it's more familiar to you. Mm. So it's not, it's not, I'm just doing this out of chance. It's actually not luck at all. It's something you've constantly practiced. It is, isn't it? And I think we've both both spoken, haven't we, about how, how athletes that we work with um, struggle with the notion of a float. Remember, we, we speak about a float yeah. recovery. And uh, I think we've both spoken at times about our, our frustrations that some athletes will want to, again, quantify that, that it's not good enough to say, well, a float is... Uh, slightly faster than a jog it feels biomechanically like an easy run rather than a shuffle you know people will want you to set a, a particular uh, split for that 400 meter float for the, the minute that you ask them to to cover and, and that that really is revealing isn't it about the, the cultural issue that we face with running today even even the recovery if it's an active mode of recovery has to be quantified yeah I actually posed this question to, to a mentor of mine who I've been working with who's, who's been helping me with well um, we've always done that in our world on the track and on the road but in the trails it's very different you know mm. we, we have a lot of splits on the track you and I call them out on a night on a Tuesday of you course, know as yeah. they come through it gives them that feedback as the as a training and you don't have that information when you're on the trails but one of my questions was around that float recovery sometimes I want that float recovery to be an easy float recovery so like a, an easy jog, an active recovery. But sometimes I want that float recovery, just depending on what I'm looking for from the session. I want it to be more of a steady float recovery. Of course. So it's, it's a little bit faster. And, and I said, look, do you quantify this any different to, to how I do? And he said, well, how do you do it? And I mm. said, well, I actually just use RPE. I, I go to the athlete and I say, right, I want you to do a float recovery. And if it's an easy float recovery, yeah. I want you to be between two and four out of 10 for that recovery. That's what it should feel like, two and four mm. out of 10. But if it's a steady, I want you more like five or six out of, of 10. And then I want the reps at this sort of intensity. And and he said, yeah, that's exactly the same as what I do. And he's one of the best trail coaches in the world. And he yeah. said he used it for any standard of athlete. And I think you're right, Lewis. I think, again, uh, speaking more as a, with my sociology hat on as well, I, I think that the idea of, of, of a a one to 10 ranking is, is interesting in our culture. I, I thought about this podcast the other night. I was watching, a, I think it was a rerun of Strictly Come Dancing. And, you know, everybody, contestants are marked out of 10, aren't they, basically? And then you, you open the, I don't know, the, the, the tabloids and you'll read about, I don't know, Marcus Rashford's performance for Man United and he's rated out of 10 and the referee's rated. So, so it's something that the RPE scale, the out of 10 scale, as you've alluded to, is something that, We've all got a kind of wider cultural reference point for really. So it so it is usable. It is user friendly, isn't it? It's user friendly, and what I love about it, it doesn't matter what standard of athlete you you are. It's the same for everyone. The paces on that scale are what is different, mm. but the effort level, the intensity level that you're looking for is the same. Because if it's mm. down at one, that's us just walking or sitting. Mm. If it's 
two, three, four, it's easy running or recovery running. I would say two to three is recovery run and then four, maybe, you know, we, we agreed at the weekend that um, in the group that anything below five would be classed as easy for the group. That's mm. what they came to that conclusion. And everybody was happy to agree on that. And then after that, they said, yeah, it's more like steady. And then there's tempo. And then you're getting up into kind of anaerobic reps and VO2 max reps at the top end. And I said, yeah, and it depends how people want to, you know, to quantify it, the first time you ever sat down in a talk with with me at the Steve Cram training camp, I said, look, I use tempo and threshold as these terms, but I appreciate people use it in a different way. They have different terminologies for the same thing. Mm. But RPE, the scale of one to 10, there isn't much deviation from it. And that's what I like about it. There's not much deviation. I'll I'll pick up on another cultural anomaly, though. I spoke to a physio at the weekend about about this, this idea of of RPE and perception. And uh, the physio said to me, she said, yeah, we we use that all the time with injuries. We will often say to a patient that presents with, uh, I don't know, plantar fasciitis injury or shin splints, on a scale of one to 10, when I touch it, how painful is it? 10 being excruciating, one being mild. And that's quite common. Pe- people are very ready to do that. Oh, it's a three, it's a four. I deal with that with, with athletes. You know, how painful is it? How, how's your shins feeling? How's your calf? Uh, and I do, I do sense that athletes are very okay with that. They're very comfortable with that. But sometimes when you actually say, well, how did the run feel out of 10? They're less, they're less keen to do so. It's almost as if they can do it for an injury quite readily, but not, they're less reluctant to do it. Um, I guess I'm thinking loud, they're less reluctant to do it for a run. I just wonder whether it's because, I don't know, if your leg hurts, you you can't really measure it unless you've got some MRI scan, but you, you're going to say, oh, it's a three, it's a four, it's a five, you know. I mean, I banged my head on a wall the other day out on a run and cut my head open. And I was, oh, it's a nine out of ten. You know, we're ready to do that, but I, I sense that we're, we're less ready as runners to do it when people say, how was your run out of 10? Because we just go, well, there's my data. Yeah. I think tied into that as well, Matt, I agree. I think people rely on the data way too much to say, well, that that's just how it was. Look, look at my splits. That's how it was. Mm. But actually, there can be a div- big difference between how something looks to, to split and how it actually felt. And sometimes I think we lack that honesty with ourselves. We want it to be easier than it is and because it's mm. not we sometimes then don't want to put a number on it because we know we've maybe not achieved what we were going out to achieve and I had this problem the other day with a session I did a session on Tuesday with Gemma that this was last Tuesday the week before the race I wanted it to feel easier I didn't want to go too hard the week out from a race it wasn't feeling as easy as I thought it was going to that's a bit of perception of effort anyway yeah and a bit of psycho- psychology in there I then felt a bit of a tweak in my calf. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to stop stop yeah. this session. Um, but if I was being brutally honest with myself, um, I would probably say that my mind was never really in it from the start. And I didn't really want to turn up and do a session that was like seven out of 10. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that I was ready to do nine, 10 out of 10 at the weekend. Yes. So sometimes I think we can kid ourselves. And if it's harder than we're perceiving it to be, we don't like that as, as humans. And we, we sometimes think of it as failure as well. Like let, I've set somebody a session. I don't want you to go any more than an eight. And mm. they're feeling like, oh God, this is a nine. And I don't want to disappoint you because I'm then not going to hit the splits that mm. you want. But really I'd be saying, look, I'm not bothered about the splits. I want you to pull back to an eight to make sure that we're in the right zone. Cause that's what we're looking for. Yeah. We're not looking for the splits. We're looking to be in that right zone and perception of effort, perception of effort gives us that. Yeah, again, um, again, just thinking a little bit broader, I, I know most people will accept the idea of a 1 to 10 scale. I've worked with athletes before that for somehow they, they've used a, a 1 to 15 scale, a 1 to 20 scale. I even worked with an athlete once that was, I guess, more of what you would call, a, in terms of a learning style, was more of a visual learner that would say that that's, that's, a, that's a, a green run, green for her. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. A red run was, is, is your, your kind of uh, your VO2 max session. So she'd have this elaborate kind of colour code I think there were seven different colours where she'd say, now that's a green, that's a yellow, that's an amber, that's an orange, and now it's a red. So so I'm, I'm just, and most people won't do that, but, but, but there's nothing, we're not trying to make a kind of fetish of this idea it has to be one to ten or it even has to be numbers. It's a bit like the ski runs you find in ski resorts. You have right? green, 
Like, is that, I don't, I don't yeah. know, I've never been a skier. But yeah. So yes, they have a green run, which is, I think even some resorts have a yellow, which is below that. But but mainly the ones I've been to anyway, green runs, yeah. almost like your beginner runs. Then you have your blue runs, a little bit more advanced than that. Right. Then you have your red runs, which are really? like yeah. a bit more technical, a bit steeper. Then you have your black ones, which are really tough. Mm. And then you kind of have like off-piece stuff there, so they're not, not really graded. I think some resorts throw some different colours in that are just slightly harder than a black, like they classify them how they want. But you're right, it's like there's always like a colour code to certain things. And we see that with the zones. Um, they colour, We use Final Surge as our software. Of course. Yeah. And if people put their training zones into their Garmin, that'll sink through to Final Surge and we can see them. I can think of certain athletes where that is the case for me, where they've got it programmed into the watch and automatically that syncs up with their Final Surge and it'll come up and say, right, today... Lewis spent um, this amount of time in zone two and this color for zone two was green and then yeah. above that. But So sometimes those color codes are classed towards the zones as well. Yeah. So that, shall, we, shall we try and spend some min- a few minutes marrying the, the, the kind of RPE scale with the zonal system? Because I think with zones, most people listening will go, oh, I know what training zones are. Mm. But it is possible. I know when we were talking about this webinar, I said to you, well, you know, well, ha- what zonal system do you use? Because th- those zones are contested. There are different uh, definitions. The, the zones that we use are social constructions. They're not social facts. So shall we spend a little bit of time marrying the RPE with the zonal system? Absolutely. I think that's one thing people will really benefit from is like, well, this RPE scale is good, but what do you actually mean by like, where does that relate in terms of these efforts I'm putting in? Yeah. So yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. What, what, what do you go for? Actually, we'll go, how do you define it on the scale of one to 10? And then I'll explain if there's any differences with mine, the wording as such, but let's go through those zones. So your first zone is right down the bottom. Right down the, the bottom for me would be a, a, the recovery zone, you know, yeah. the, the first zone, you know, and, and that would be a recovery run. And that would be the sort of run that we would typically affect um, post a race, post a hard training session, if if a passive day of recovery wasn't needed. So, and I guess I guess the other, if we flip it on its head, I would sometimes call that recovery run a shakeout run if it was before a big competition, if it was the day before a race, yeah. um, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon if it was a shakeout run to have a few 10 second alactic strides put in there. You know, perhaps you've arrived at a big hotel the day before uh, the London Marathon, you want to do two or three miles dead steady and put a few strides in there to get your legs ticking over, make sure that you're not... You know, you're not too tight after that long car journey. So I guess for me, uh, uh, my first zone would be recovery, stroke, shakeout, which is is used around competition, either to recover or to to really reduce the taper. Exactly the same as as me. And then I would say, you know, for some athletes, a coach, that's a run. For some, it might be a walk, recovery walk. Um, it's amazing how many people don't class that as a, a recovery mm. method. Uh, and some, it might be cross-training as well for those people who want to offload a little bit as well. So it might be a, a recovery swim in there or a recovery cycle. But as long as it's low aerobic intensity where we are recovering from, a, as I would say, a more intense or longer bit of exercise that has had quite a cost on the system. There's got mm. to be some recovery in there. Absolutely. So, yeah. and, and again, we, we can't we can't emphasise this enough that the, the amount of athletes that I speak to that don't record in their training diaries, their final surges walking, which is a tragedy because, you know, you, you should do it. I mean, the, the best example, I think we've alluded to this before, is, is the late, great Sir Roger Bannister, you know, the first four-minute mile in May 19... 19- 54, I think it was. And people used to say to me when I was growing up, oh, Sir Roger Bannister ran a four-minute mile. He, he, he ran teenage miles. He ran 15 miles a week. Well, that might have been true, but he also went walking 30 to 40 miles in the Peak District and areas like that every weekend. But he never he never recorded that. He never blew his own trumpet about it. But, but, but when people analysed his training, when I dug into it, I think I wrote a piece for Athletics Weekly about it, people wrongly assume that he was doing all speed endurance work it was all lactate stuff and that you didn't need an aerobic base and of course he must have been laughing because he he'd, he'd got his aerobic base not not through steady running he hadn't got the time to do that in the week when he was doing his medical degree in London I think it was 
he had half an hour to train. Yeah. And then eat his lunch. But he did the aerobic stuff at the weekend and people missed that. So I think that that, that story of a, one of our most famous athletes is interesting. You know, Sir Roger Bannister wouldn't have run a four-minute mile on 15 miles a week. No. He, he could do it because he'd got, you know, the 80% of what he was doing or thereabouts was aerobically dominant walking over the fells. Yeah, and I had the pleasure of sitting with his, his son at the National Running Show uh, yeah. on the Steve Crumb Training Camp stand, and and it was just fascinating listening to him and even some of the things about like cycling as well yeah. you know he was he was cycling to work i believe or even to to the track and there was that form of exercise in there that people weren't thinking about but but genuinely he said yeah my, you know my dad operated off a, a bit of what people perceived to be a lower volume but there was a lot of other things in there so you've yeah. absolutely the nail on the head and and that's when i will encourage my athletes to record it because because sometimes they don't value it enough oh it was only a walk it's not worth mm. recording to make sure that they, they, they see it as part of their training, sometimes I will say, hey, that does need to be in your final surge. That's good. Reward yourself. You know, add that three-mile walk onto your 35-mile week. It's yeah. 38 miles. Oh, can I do that? Yeah, you've not cheated. No, that's fine. So sometimes there is a benefit to quantifying and capturing that. Definitely. 100% agree. So next one then um, for me, and then I'll, I'll come over yeah. to you. Easy is then my next yeah. zone. So we've got recovery. Uh, and I think this is really hard for sometimes uh, people sometimes to define what's the difference. Um, but there is a subtle difference for me in, in recovery runs or recovery activity and then easy runs, easy activity. But easy runs fall again somewhere between that three, four, maybe touching five, maybe, depending on the length of that easy run but yeah so it shares it shares for me a commonality we're, we're we're heavily into the the aerobic energy system you know it's yeah. it, so it shares a commonality with the recovery run i guess for me the recovery run you know again we're talking about biomechanics it might feel more like a shuffle a jog you know like the shakeout run will be literally just you know take it easy and shuffle along and then put a few strides in i guess the easy easy run uh, the the easy run for me is is where you are running biomechanically rather than simply jogging that would be my difference yeah and i think people find it hard to do that pace the the recovery run they they say oh biomechanically feels awkward and 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 i was honest with somebody recently at a workshop they said i just can't lock into that pace and I don't think it's that you can't lock into it. I think it's just that you've not done enough of it and yeah. you're not used to it and you really need to practice it. It's a skill to, to practice. A, a skill to learn to jog. Absolutely. Even. Skill yeah. acquisition. That's what it is. It is, isn't it? And I think I think we're all, again, it, it, we're, it, we're, we're all a product of our time. Had we, you and I, been sat here in the 1970s, you know, that's when in America and again uh, in this country, there was the jogging boom. Yeah. Uh, and even in British coaches like Frank Dick, who led the British team, coached people like Daley Thompson in the 80s, would do not podcasts, but, but videos and, and, and kind of TV programs about how to jog. And it was jogging, you know. And so, so we were a nation back then that, that grew into learning how to jog rather than run in the 70s. You know? But we've lost that skill. I think we've lost <laughs> it. And I think... There's a lot out there that promotes people to run faster. Strava being one, park run, people always competing yeah. with each other and themselves and other people and sharing data. Whereas before, like you say, the culture was very different and it encouraged more more jogging. So up from easy then, have you got a zone up from there, Matt? Yeah, for me, I'd, I'd talk about steady running. And again, this is a real grey area. But but I guess for me, that that's sub kind of threshold running. You're not at your threshold pace. Um, it, it's a steady run. This, I mean, you know, I will often say, you know, to an athlete, do a do a long steady run, do a steady 15 mile run, no tempo blocks within there. You are building for the London Marathon. So for me, a steady run will have a purpose. Ordinarily, the social practice of it means that it's higher in volume than a recovery run or an easy run. Um, typically for me, that will be a long Sunday run, yeah. which isn't a half marathon or marathon specific pace so let's dial into that because i'm exactly the same steady's next on my scale um and i'll set a, a long sunday run and my description on my long sunday run to a lot of my runners is this is a let's just say they're going to go out for two hours for example so two hour run i would like you intensity to be at rpe three or four out of ten i'd mm. like you to be at easy intensity mm. however by the end, 
that may feel more like steady effort. Yeah. So by the time you get to the end of that run, you're going to be more like six or seven because Mm. it's a sliding scale, this. Even though the pace has remained the same, mm. we've actually gone up on that scale a little bit. And I because think, of the volume. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's where people get confused, isn't it? They're like, well, you said steady, so I went out at six, and then I couldn't yeah. hold that pace. And that, that's a really big learning. But one, of the, one of the bugbears that, that I have is, is a, you know, I'm somebody that, that, that's um, also a Lydiard-trained um, coach as well. It went, and I think Arthur Lydiard was very, very good at teaching us that sometimes the long run has to be protected as a session in itself. Just spoke to a, to an athlete this morning that was basically saying, well, I'm going to smash a park run at the weekend on Saturday and I'm going to do a 20-mile 20, 20 long run on Sunday. Uh, and she couldn't get it into her, ma- her head that actually you shouldn't be doing that because, you you know, in between a park run or a hard 5K, if you're using it as a time trial, you need either a recovery run or an easy run. You don't just go on to... Um, a, a, um, you know, a steady long run. But I guess for her, she was like she, she, she. I guess she couldn't make the the distinction between having an easy run, which might be four or five miles, just to get the legs turning over, and doing more volume to her because it was low intensity. She thought, well, why why can't I do that? And I think a, for me, a lot of athletes conflate um, an easy run, uh, sorry, a steady run, a, a long steady run with an easy or a recovery run. It, there's that conflation. Oh, it's it's you know Lewis has said it's three or four out of ten. Hook oh, anybody can run run that. Doesn't matter that it's fifteen miles, but it's the volume that that is the killer. Yeah, I I agree completely, Matt. And and on that point of the five k and the the twenty miler, we touched on this at the marathon workshop at the weekend. I like to look at that twenty miler as like, well, it might seem like an easy intensity for you, mm. but what is the cost? of that 20 miler to you as a person like in, in terms of the mechanical loading exactly that yeah. and and everything like you you look at it and you go right well um it might look like the volume um is is just an easy intensity volume but actually what's the loading effect of that and Absolutely. what's the cost to you and and that's where there was a high cost on the saturday because the volume was low but the intensity is high and then it's the opposite on the Sunday. The intensity's low, but the volume's high. Yeah. So they've both had equivalent of high cost in a different way, and you've put mm. them back to back. Some people ever so often do that as a training effect. They try and overreach, and we see that common in triathlon where they have these big training weekends. But for me, if you're not trained well enough to do that and you're not monitoring things well enough, that is a high-risk strategy that often has bad consequences. Yeah, let's be honest with you. I mean, I I also coach a couple of ultra runners that will deliberately put two they will, you know, they will backload their week. week, You know, their, their work has to be done. The volume has to be done at weekends. They'll do a you know, um, um, a long run on the Saturday of 26 mile, for example, and then do a 13 mile run the next day. That's a deliberate strategy. Yeah. Uh, um, and that's thought through proactively. But we're not talking about this. What, what we're not. talking about are people that can't disaggregate, you know, a steady run from an easy run from a recovery run. And, and, and you know, we, in my day as a, as a club athlete, people used to say, oh, yeah, your long Sunday run, it's time on your feet. Well, you don't say that when you're doing a recovery run, do you? Or a or an easy run. You don't say, I'm just off for a bit of time on my feet. Whereas we do for, for that kind yeah. of steady run, which is why it needs to be disaggregated. Yes. And let's stick in steady then, because... A lot of marathon runners are coming into marathon season. And the common question I got the National Running Show was, well, is steady marathon pace? And I said, well, depends who you are. And they kind of looked confused at me. And I, and I define steady like physiologically from my learning understanding from the physiologist I've worked with, that it's usually around three hours that you can sustain a steady pace for. Mm. So three hours worth of work. Yeah. So what I was saying to this individual was, well, if you're a three-hour marathon runner, give or take, in and around there, that is going to be steady pace for you. Yes. But I said, let's let's get an understanding here of physiology and how this is going to be different for different standards of runners. Yeah. So at the weekend, we, we said to people, okay, well, where's... Elliot Kipchoge or, you know, somebody like a, a Bridget Koskai or uh, Paula Radcliffe on that scale. So if if three hours is steady, 
that means that they need to be slightly higher than steady for their marathon pace because they're doing the marathon in two hours to 2.15, for example. And everyone agreed, yes, okay, mm. so so their marathon pace is slightly above steady. Mm. Okay, but then we've got somebody who wants to run five hours. Mm. So they're going to run five hours. So where does their marathon pace sit? Yes. Because you can only hold steady for three hours. Mm. And they said, oh, well, actually, their marathon pace is easy. Mm. And, I, and I said, yeah, absolutely right. Because physiologically speaking, they're doing an ultra here because yes, yeah. they're out for five hours. So then we went all the way back to the elites, you know, Paula Radcliffe, Shelley Kipchoge, the best marathon runners the world's ever seen. Mm. And I said, now let's apply that same physiolo- physiology to, to Paula and Elliot. So we're going to say to them, right, you're going to do a five-hour run. Mm. Where do you need to be on that RPE chart? And they all agreed they need to be below steady because they're going to try and hold it for five hours. And I said, there you go. Like that's the, this is why we're not all set on everybody's steady state is marathon pace. It's impossible. And this is where you've got to use this skill for your own benefit and your own advantage, but you've got to suss it out yourself as well, haven't you? So as coaches, we need to be athlete centered in the way in which we apply that. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Let's go up from six. Let's go to more seven eight where what where do you sit there matt where's well again this is a big strength of yours and, and something i learned a lot from you from it, it the next stage for me would be the the, the threshold uh, type of runs you know yeah. you, you've often used the word tempo i prefer the word threshold i think it's more specific for me tempo means you know you can run a 3k tempo a 5k tempo it means all things to all people but for me you're getting into that upper end of your aerobic capacity threshold running would you agree with that yeah and i i've now gone down the route particularly for a lot of the athletes i work with at the top end of defining that into two categories because i think they get confused because a lot of people say tempo is a pace that you should be able to hold for an hour or threshold is a pace you should be able to hold Hmm. for an hour now we know a lot of physio um, physiological testing now says we've got this first term point first lactic term point and then we've got the second lactic term point Hmm. that lactic threshold um and there's a big window in the middle of there. Yes, you know, there is, yeah. the, and, and being at the top end of that is a lot different to being at the bottom end of that. Mm. So the, those two turn points is what I'm saying. So we've got turn point one and turn point two, just for those of you listening and, and tuning in. And then we've got a gap in between those terms, like a space. Mm. And there's a big difference between the top end of that turn point towards lactic turn point two yeah. and being right close to lactic turn point one. Yeah. So what I've done with my athletes is I've said, right, on my scale, I'm going to say tempo is around seven yeah, and threshold is around eight. Yeah. Do you all understand that? Yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay. And if tempo is something we could sustain for an hour, for, for you elite athletes, that's in and around between 10 miles and half marathon pace, yeah. somewhere around there. So that gives you a, a good gauge, guys. But actually, we're going to say threshold. We want to push that threshold a little bit. We're going to say that's a bit closer to kind of 10K. So mm. that's between your 10 mile and 10K mm. because we want to... eight out of 10. Eight yeah. out of 10, yeah. exactly yeah. that. And, and that's, I've started to use that concept now. And that seems to resonate really well for people because I think they find that just tempo seems to be almost too big of a zone, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good disaggregation, yeah. So a seven or an eight. Exactly Definitely. that. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Good. So then we go above that. So we've gone, right, threshold, and we can break. I think really important to say here, in order to develop that threshold, and I'm sure you would agree, I often break that down into reps and give them threshold reps because I yeah, think it's or, really hard to maintain. what we would call in, in the discourse in-and-out tempo work. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I often feel as a coach, one of the, the training stimuluses that, athletes will get from that is where we have the interplay between a continuous block of tempo one week and then a a discontinuous block of in and out tempo the next yes and i think it's really important for marathon runners in particular those people who are doing longer uh, events like ultras and even half marathons you've got to have some form of continuous tempo running in there or steady running in there yeah. to get used to it psychologically as much as anything and um, back to our point right at the start that you were saying to me like what are you thinking about when you're running it's a good chance to practice all that in those continuous yeah. tempo runs yeah so we go up to eight, we've got eight threshold and then nine. Where, where are you sitting at nine? Well, for me, I think that that's where interval training begins. And remember that there's a difference between the notion of the interval and a repetition. An interval is, is where, you know, Peter Thompson, a very famous coach, coach educator based in Oregon now would say the interval training is where the focus is on 
the mode of recovery. So yeah. for me, it would be aerobic intervals. Um, and there's three golden rules for, for me for an aerobic interval, Lewis. One, it, it, it's a long effort. It's relatively long in terms of minutes or in terms of, of volume. Short recovery. Yeah. But critically, what people tend to miss off when they're feeding back to a coach is that it should be still some active mode of recovery. So it shouldn't be a walk. It should either be a jog or a mode of floating. And that's the thing that people tend to, to miss. But yes. aerobically dominant, um, ordinarily beyond threshold pace, we might be looking at, I don't know, people running at 10K pace, perhaps dipping into 5K pace. You know, five by a K would be a classic example. Five by a K with, you know, um, a minute recovery, but, you know, make sure the minute is, you know, an active recovery, you know, five by 2K, three by 2K. Those sorts of sessions for me, which would probably be beyond threshold, yeah, it, it, a little bit different from an in and out tempo, a little bit more challenging in terms of intensity, but certainly not what we would classify. I think athletes sometimes say, well, that's, that's speed work then. It's not. It's, it's aerobic endurance still. It's an aerobic interval. It's not a speed endurance session yeah and i think this is where we have to be very careful with our descriptions as coaches because i think a lot can fall into this nine and particularly 10 category so mm. you know nine for me exactly the same as you there's going to be some aerobic intervals where the athletes are going to get to nine out of ten and um, but they've probably started down at eight out of ten in that session but mm. the, again the duration of the session has challenged them to get to to yes. nine out yeah. of ten um but then your VO2 max type work, as you quite rightly say, Matt, where, you know, the recovery really dictates the intensity of, of the repetition. Um, so something like I'll go with the five by a K that you mentioned. And instead of having a one minute and making that a more of aerobic session, we have two and a half to three minutes. In fact, I'll say three minutes. It's almost one to one recovery for like our elite athletes. That becomes even harder then. That's like a real high end nine almost, isn't it? And we're, we're tipping into that VO2 max category. Yeah. And I'll, I'll never forget. I, I think I'm going back 10 years or more now. I remember being coaching at Birmingham University with a great Bud Baldaro. And we were at some kind of coach education session and we were discussing Hannah England's uh, type of work and she'd just won a silver as you'll remember at the world championships in the 1500 and I remember somebody in the audience saying oh Hannah England um, I'm making the session Hannah England does the same in the summer as she does in the winter she does 10 400s in the summer and 10 400s in the winter mm -hmm. and I said um, um, forgive me a little bit creative license here with the times but I said well no she's doing 10 400s in the winter in 70 seconds off a, a lap float recovery She's doing 10 400s in the summer at close to 64 seconds, but she's got a three-minute passive walk recovery. Yeah, It's a materially different session. So often what you find is athletes look at the, the session, but, but by completely ignoring the length and the mode of recovery, um, you know, that's the last thing, you know, it really frustrates me as a coach. The last thing an athlete will ever say to me when they feed back is that they will say that the rep or the interval, that they will say the recovery time, but very rarely will they t articulate or want to articulate the mode of recovery. It's because I was coached by John Nuttall and the late great John Nuttall, and he emphasized the importance of recovery to me quite early. And, you know, I'm not judging you on your reps. I'm judging you on your recovery, he used to say to me, which I thought was genius. I'm looking at how you recover. tells me everything I need to know. But because of that, I used to look at my session and one of the, f I'm not going to say it was the first thing I looked at, but one of the first things I did look at mm. was what recovery you're giving me. Yeah. Because that's going to tell me the intensity that John wants for those repetitions. The repetitions aren't going to tell me the intensity. Mm. They're, they're going to give me an idea but as you quite rightly say, Matt, 10 fours off three minutes is a lot different to 10 fours even off a minute. Of course it is. Completely yeah. different session. Com and, and what we're looking for here, and I think this is a, a good coaching lesson for anybody listening, even if you coach yourself, is um, what I try and do with my sessions now, and it's been a really good learning for me over the years, working with yourself and different other coaches who we kind of mentor each other, you know, always chatting to each other, is looking at what do I want to elicit from this session? Mm. What is the physiological um, properties I want to elicit from this session? Is there anything psychological I want to get from it? And then I look at the structure of the session and I say, right, is that recovery going to allow me to get that mm. out of that session? 
And that's how we piece together these sessions. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So if someone's looking at that and saying, well, those sessions are the same just because they've got the same number of repetitions, it's the same volume, then you're totally on the wrong page. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. And isn't it interesting how we've been through, let, let, let's just recap, let's just revise. So we've had, I think we've got six zones, haven't we? We've said, we've talked about yep. recovery. Easy. Uh, easy, steady. Yep. Uh, threshold. Yep. Tempo, just ahead of that. Yep. Um, and then the, you know, going above that, yes, you know, you're talking about your aerobic intervals, and then um, the final one, your, your speed endurance or your VO2 max kind of stuff. And this is, yeah, this is so most of them are aerobic. That's that's the key learning. Absolutely, point, you know? absolutely, they're all almost all aerobic to that point. And this is where the the top end of that scale is so interesting for me because we know a VO2 max session is going to be kind of hard it's going to be 10 out of 10 mm. but i'll say to the athletes like if you go 10 out of 10 on rep one we're probably going to be in trouble you know we've got to probably start at nine and get to 10 yes whereas like if i'm prescribing and, and rightly so you know if i'm prescribing uh fast strides which are speed work you know mm. six to ten second lactic strides i'm saying to them look i do want them to be 10 out of 10 in terms of the effort you're putting in i call it optimum mm. so we're looking to put optimum effort in whilst trying trying to focus on relaxation and, and being good with our running form. But the effort of that isn't going to feel like 10 because it's too short for yes. you guys to get that feeling. Yeah, And I think that's where people get confused with this. Like it's almost we're asking for 10 out of 10 in terms of intensity, but actually sometimes it's not going to feel like 10 out of 10. Mm, absolutely. And I guess I guess this is probably we're, we're hinting or looking ahead to a future podcast. But just to give you another visual analogy, I've often, I don't know whether I've used it on a podcast before, but I've been taught the the egg basket analogy. I don't know whether you've heard of it. Yeah, you've know, mentioned that before yeah, to me. Yeah, you've got three egg baskets. You've yeah. got a fast basket, you've got a slow basket, you've got a medium in the middle basket. And I guess this is longer term around how we periodize our work. We've got to think about, well, using that scale of RPE, using the zonal system, am I the sort of athlete that benefits most or best from what we call polarized training? Now, polarized training means you put some egg eggs in basket one, yep. fast basket, not too many, and some eggs in basket three, the slow basket. You polarise, yeah? Yeah. Or, alternatively, am I the sort of athlete that benefits not from polarisation, but from what the physiologist, people like you, Dave Sheldon, that works for us, will talk about non-polarised training, where you put not all, but the majority of your eggs into the middle, medium basket. Pyramidal, I think they're referring yeah, to that now. Yeah. Pyramidal. Yeah. yeah. And again, there's not one size fits all. Uh, and, and, and even so, you know, again, again, you, I'm, I'm, I'm asking athletes to think about what might work for them. But at different points of the periodization cycle, I mean, I work with an athlete that at the minute will put most of her eggs in basket two. Yeah. When it comes to the spring and she moves from the country, the... Um, the trails, the mountains onto the track, she will polarise yeah. from spring onwards and then go. So she will begin to divide those basket two eggs into ones and threes. You can't, I mean, the moral of the story is with the egg basket analogy, you can't just put eggs in all the baskets. You're either a one or a three or a two. You can't be a one, two and three because that's where you'll get problems. Yeah. And I think that's what people try to do and they yeah. get confused. So let's go with a middle approach here because mm. I'm a big fan of what we call intensity distribution of mm. like making sure you're, you're hitting all those zones. But that doesn't mean you're putting all your eggs in the baskets. What it means is if you're in that pyramidal, a lot of that work is um, dominantly done in and around steady or, or mm. threshold. But there's still a little bit of easy stuff in there. And there's course. still a yeah. little bit of faster stuff. But predominantly speaking, it's all in that middle middle yeah. basket is what we're saying, aren't we, Matt? That's right. And, and I think that's the confusion. People then go, right, well, everything I do has got to be zone two or, or zone three because I'm going to go all in on that. And actually say, no, we still want some variance in there. But depending on the period of training you're in, as you quite rightly say, it depends on what that looks like. So I'm going to use Gemma again, as who I coach, my wife as an example. Right now, mm. we're really trying to develop Gemma's threshold running. Mm. But we're also trying to develop her downhill skill of running. Uh, so the downhill running as a skill even. Mm. Now, a big learning for me has been in order to develop a skill that is that, that has that technicity, 
she's got to be in a quite a fresh state. If mm. I get her to develop that when she's tired, it becomes quite high risk and yes. we probably won't get the benefit. So when she's on her easy runs, we're adding in some downhill work mm. and that is now starting to become a little bit faster within the easy run. Um, so the easy runs are maybe a little bit harder than what they would be usually. Um, and we're also working hard at developing that threshold and tempo. Mm. So there's loads in the middle right now. Mm. There's actually not much at all in the speed work. She, but she still does her strides once yeah. a week. So we still tap into it. But you're absolutely bang on. In the period we're in now, we're going to sit in there and we're going to sit there for quite a while. Mm. And this is what got me at the National Running Show and people were saying, yeah, but, you know, everyone's saying about this 80-20 rule. Mm. And I said, well, where are you in terms yeah. of your training? Because yeah. that can't be applicable all the way through your training plan, can it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think the interesting thing, Lewis, is it's sadly that in the culture that we inhabit, I mean, I know one of the national magazines went through a period a few years ago of talking about star athletes and their killer sessions. Yeah. And I think athletes do tend to get preoccupied with what's the session or what's the best session to do. Whereas what you and I have tried to do today is a, there's a saying we have in Burton on Trent. I don't know whether you've ever heard of it, but uh, my late mother, God rest her soul, used to say, do, you know, be careful, son, you can't see the wood for the trees. Have you ever heard yeah. of that saying? It's yeah. where you get so bogged down into the detail of 10 400s this, 8 300s that, that actually you need to step back and see the bigger picture. Yeah. Why are we doing this work? And that will only come from the RPE scale. It will only come from educating yourself around the zonal system. It will only, and if that doesn't work for you, go to something more visual. Think about the egg baskets. To tie that in, your visual there, it's a really good one. It's of my learning for the week from you is that is the, the problem Gemma had with downhill runners. Any trail or ultra runners listening here, she she couldn't see the wood from the trees because she was so focused on what is in front of her and where her foot is going. She actually wasn't visualizing her path down at all. She yeah. wasn't looking at picking a route and being visually aware of all those other things around her that you've got to do when you're descending at speed. Yeah. So many people become so obsessed and zoned in. Mm. And I'm kind of, if you're not watching on video, I'm doing that with my eyes, my hands zoning in on something that you're almost too focused on it. Yeah. And you then, you know, for her, she's not relaxed. She's not flowing down the hill. So yeah. it's a really good analogy that I, they I think use. The, the psychologists and social psychologists talk about it as, as being myopic or myopia, that, that, that kind of short-term vision, you know, the idea that, you know, if you're looking at um, somebody cycling, I was looking out the window today and it's just, you know, East Midlands Airport in the background and somebody cycling seems to be going faster than the plane. Yeah, yeah. Your, your perception, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and myopia. So uh, I'd certainly encourage athletes to, to try and develop, to go beyond that short-termism, to get themselves a new pair of spectacles where they can put this into perspective and, and think about training macrocycles and, my, and you know, mesocycles rather than just the minutiae of what's the best session to do you know, for a marathon, what's the best 10K session. And I think we could sit here all day and we could say, you know, well, how much easy running should people be doing? And how many, like you say, what are these key sessions that people should be putting in marathon plans? And, mm. you know, what you should you be doing in your off season, blah, 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 and go into so much detail. And, and to be honest, we'll never satisfy everyone because no. it's a very individual sport, as you put and quite rightly said earlier, it's a very athlete-centered um, sport. And we have that coaching relationship with our athletes where we're able to do that. But what we hope this has provided you at home with is just some knowledge and tools to go away and have a think about your training and where you are on that, uh, particularly in that period of time, where are you on that training plan and are you periodizing your training a little bit? Are you differentiating between the different phases? And how you could potentially do that very simply by using that that RPE scale and being aware of the zones that, that you're training. But what we can't do is, is give you an exact formula because there never is an exact mm. formula. It's very different for different people. And you've kind of got to figure that out in the same way we do as coaches for the athletes we work with. Absolutely. So three, you know, three bits of homework, really. One, are you using an RPE scale and which one? And if not, why aren't you using one? Secondly, go and educate yourself about the about the zonal system. With your consent, I might be able to do a little blog associated with that yep, on, absolutely on, on zonal systems. Yeah. You know, and, and thirdly, think about analogies that work for you. Think about the egg basket analogy, which brings polarized polarized versus pyramidic pyramidal training alive. So go away and do the thinking really.
And hopefully you can, like you say, well, find plenty of education out there. But this has been an insight. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I always learn. I feel like we learn every time we talk to each other. And it's really it's really beneficial for us as coaches. So hopefully it's been beneficial for for you at home. I'm going to leave you with those three takeaways, that bit of homework from Matt. We will follow it up with a blog. Matt's been doing some fantastic work for us, uh, writing up about our podcast. So if you've not found that already, head on over to New Levels Coach and have a look at our blog. And if you if you like what Matt's writing and you maybe want to speak to him more about coaching, then get in touch with us at New Levels Coaching because Matt, uh, as a lot of our coaches do, have capacity to take people on. And we know it's that time of year where people are looking and thinking, I've got big goals for 2024. I might need some support with that. Well, if you want some support with that, you can book in for a call with myself or Jethro and we'll chat to see if we are the right people to help you on that running journey. And if we can support you and if we've got the coaches and if they've got the capacity to help you on that journey, as well. It might be that you're not thinking about coaching and you just want to keep tuning into these podcasts, but also with the blogs as well now on there, mm. there's lots of information, education to for you to go away and read and educate yourself. And that might be step one for you. And that's great as long as you're getting that education to help you inform your training. So my last message as always is enjoy your training. Best of luck for anybody racing out there. There's lots of races coming up for our coaches. Matt, are you racing soon? Well, I just want to I just want to shake your hand and say, if you invite me, because you're on camera, you know, if you invite me to this trail workshop, you you will be invited. Yes, I of promise course. that that before I come, I will learn how to use a compass. Is that, a deal? <laughs> that is a deal. That is a deal. We can't have you as a run leader, can we? If you don't know where you're going, but it is in your neck of the woods. It's Derbyshire, so you might be at a bit of an advantage. Fantastic. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a couple of races coming up for for our coaches, and there's been some fantastic performances as always with our athletes as well. So big shout out to all our new levels coaching athletes who continue to fly the flag very, very high. Enjoy your training, and we will all see. Or we will see you all. Very soon. Thanks, everybody.